All right, everyone, if you guys want to grab a seat and bring it in, bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. You guys haven't heard that in a minute. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into our, um, to our sermon. Um, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that you are trustworthy. God, um, so many of us have a ton of different things swirling around in our hearts and our minds when we come into a place like this. We have stuff from this week. We've got stuff from our job. We have stuff going on relationally for some of us with our friendships, some awkward stuff, some painful stuff, some confusing stuff. We've got big decisions to make potentially. Maybe we have parents or grandparents or siblings or friends dealing with health crises right now. Maybe we've got financial strains. Whatever it is, God, there's a lot in this room to be afraid about, if we're honest, that, that we're afraid of, that we're nervous about. And Father, I pray that in the midst of all of that, that you would reveal to us that even when we're afraid, you are trustworthy. Would you help us see that you don't always give us what we want, but you always give us what we need, and it ends up being better than what we wanted, even if it takes a while to see that. But would we entrust ourselves to you this morning as I entrust this sermon to you this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you guys don't know me, my name's Andy. I'm currently the lead pastor of this church family, Restore Church Uptown. Um, and if you don't know me, the, uh, it's because I've been gone for about three months. Uh, it's, it's been 14 weeks since I've given my last sermon. Uh, it feels like like it's been this long since my last confession, my like Catholic roots. But um it's been this long since it's been 14 weeks since my last sermon, and I hope you miss me, right? Like not too too much, where you depend on me too much, but you also are like, ah, it'd be cool to hear from him, you know. Um, and today's a big day for a couple reasons. One, um, it's my yeah first day back in the pulpit preaching. Also, no big deal, 18th wedding anniversary today. You know what I mean? So, also Allison's birthday, or was it yesterday? Okay, it is today. All right, boom, yeah. Yeah, you always steal our anniversary thunder, man. I hate that. Um, Brad and Sarah Sarian got married on my birthday. They never come to my birthday. I think you know someone. Anyways, um, so this means that today is only my second worship gathering with this church in the last 14 weeks, my first sermon in a while. Next week, you're going to be starting a new series called Healthy Relationships. We're going to be diving into how to live with one another in intimate, mutual, healthy, loving relationships. We're going to talk about relationships in the church, relationships with our coworkers at our jobs, with our family of origin, with our parents, with our spouses, with our children, with our friends. And I'm pumped up about that series. I'm trusting that it's going to bear much fruit. Uh, but today, since it's my first Sunday back, the elders thought it would be worthwhile if I shared some things that the Holy Spirit taught me while I was away on sabbatical, hoping that there'd be something you guys might glean from that. Um, and if you guys don't know what a sabbatical is, a sabbatical is an extended break. Uh, from, from like work, ministry work, uh, to reflect, to study, to discern, to recover, and to rest. It's recommended that lead pastors take them about every five to seven years by most people that look at pastoral health. Uh, and before we went on a sabbatical, um, we announced, when, when we announced that it was happening, we worked through a set of statistics in case people were wondering like why a sabbatical was a good idea. Uh, and according to Fuller Seminary, uh, being a pastor is rough. Uh, some of the research they've done with clergy, 90% um, of pastors work 55 to 75 hours a week, which was true of me. Uh, 75, I was on the cl closer to 55 than 75, but it was, it was quite, a, quite a bit. Um, you never feel like you're off. 
Like you always feel like um, I have a bunch of friends. Some of my best friends in the world are therapists and they all go, you have cleaner boundaries than we do. And it sounds so much more exhausting. Uh, 75% of pastors are extremely stressed. 80% of pastors spouses wish their spouse was in a different profession. Can I ask Jack? I don't know if she feels that way or not today, but um, she might have three months ago. And the average seminary-trained pastor only lasts five years in pastoral ministry before they switch careers. That's the average run for someone who's paid tens of thousands of dollars to get a graduate-level degree. They're out five years later. And then we mentioned that while those statistics are rough, um, there's a different set of statistics that are pretty encouraging connected to sabbaticals. Uh, 94% of church members surveyed that they uh, found that their pastor seemed re-energized and full of faith after a sabbatical, and 80%, 87% of pastors reported a renewed commitment to ministry, and 90% were still in pastoral ministry 14 years later. I think even in the same church. I don't have that, that specific one. So you all might be wondering, did it take? Was the investment worth it? Like, we made a big deal out of it. Like, did this work, man? Because if it didn't work, man, you know? And the answer is yes, it did. It did. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, and you might be wondering, man, did I learn anything? And I learned a lot of things, okay? I actually had a profound, this is a true story. I was up, uh, me and Grant went to a week-long spiritual formation retreat, and, um, and I had a spiritual direction session where I, uh, I sat with this, this person and um, did some formational prayer and, and, and did some, some time with Jesus. It was really profound, and it actually caused me to rethink how God's viewed me ever since I was a child, reflecting on how he's been at work in my life in painful moments. And part of that conversation was about my name. Uh, I go by Andy, but, but my name, Andrew, that I kind of like pushed to the side. And coming back, I was actually considering letting people know that they could call me Andrew or Andy, kind of rebrand. It's like a kind of a healing thing. And then um, Grant Clark told me, he's rewatching The Office right now. And he, he filled me in on, a, on the fact that a character on the show, Andy Bernard, had some therapy sessions and stops going by Andy and goes by Andrew. And so, like, I'm bailing on that. You know what I mean? Like, that caused me to rethink my Andrew. I had a few spiritual direction sessions. It's got a new name. Um, it's like, I think you just watched The Office. Um, so. so besides the breakthrough regarding my trauma and my name, that really, honestly, are none of your business, what else did God teach me? And really, just one profound lesson I want to, like, key in on today. And I think it might be a lesson for a lot of us. And it's this, uh, what did I learn? Um, that I have to surrender outcomes and people to God. I have to surrender both outcomes and people to God. Um, one of the things that was um, really wild stepping away is, is how, uh, how anxious I felt. Uh, I know a couple who I'm really close to um, who have never had an overnight trip, or even one night away from their kids and their oldest kid's almost five now. And they'll actually be away from them for the very first time at the Family of Churches retreat. Not in our church. And again, they have safe, fun parents to leave their kids with, but they have a lot of un understandable anxiety around doing it. There's a couple different things going on with their kids and with them and, and all this stuff. Now, Jackie and I knew, here's the thing, I don't know if you guys know this, we knew about this church before any of you did. Because Jesus used us to start this church, to plant this church. Uh, this church was a dream God has gi had given us before we even knew if it would become a reality. I tell the story often. I remember I met with a guy. He convinced me to plant a church, and I told Jackie, and she laughed. I was like, we could raise a salary and, like, start a new church, and it's really insecure, and we just had our first kid, and we're not going to have a place to live for a year, and, and she just laughed. Uh, 
Kind of like Sarah in the Bible, you know, but it worked out. This isn't a flex, by the way. We just knew about it before because, you know, that, that reality. But here's the thing. Before we knew your names or saw your faces, before we opened our homes to you, before I ever preached a sermon in this church, before we recruited anyone to a leadership team, before we started raising money, like we loved you. It's like why we planted. It, it was for people. I don't know you guys know this. I worked at one of the biggest churches in the state. Uh, a couple of them, I was offered a job at another one, and it wasn't a platform or getting to speak I was looking for. I already had that. I wanted to see a people who came together to be transformed by Jesus. And I just thought like it was needed, you know, like I, I really felt like it was key. And so um, like we loved you then. And some of my closest friends right now, they're expecting babies as we speak. Some of them are expecting their first child. Not going to name names. And here's what you need to know about these people a lot of times with the first kid. There's a love these people already have for a child that they have never met yet, right? Matter of fact, their first interaction is going to be wild. It's going to be bodily fluid. It's going to be chunky, frankly. It's, 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 it's going to be painful. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be incredibly demanding and taxing. It's like a, a heck of a first impression. And they already love those babies, and they're going to love them more when they're here. And they love them even though they don't know them yet. They're preparing rooms for them and buying cribs and setting up registries, just praying someone buys the nice crib. And they both talk to, to the, the, the mom's stomach like crazy people. And they pray for this little person they don't even know yet, but they know that God already knows them, even though they don't know them. And, you know, 12 to 13 years before this first restored church was planted, this is what Jackie and I felt towards this community. Like, we loved you before we knew you. And we plan small groups and programs and Sunday worship gatherings and try to build teams and create a membership process before we knew any of you because we want to create a place for you to flourish and grow. And just like no home is perfect, there's no perfect church, but we're doing our best to create a safe place where people could grow and become like Jesus. And so we prayed for you knowing that God knew you before we did. That being said, it's been hard the last 12 years at times, just like being a parent is, but honestly, it's been the joy of our lives as well. Um, a book of the Bible I spent a lot of time in on the sabbatical was 1 Thessalonians. So if you guys have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, over the last 12 years, it's felt like being a parent, a spiritual parent. 1 Thessalonians 2. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, he doesn't just uh, do exposition and explain his theology or his teaching. Like, he shares his heart with the Thessalonican church. Thessalonica exists to this day. It's called Thessaloniki. Hillary Richards, I don't think she's here. She was in Thessalonica like a year ago. Like it's in Greece today. Um, it still exists and um, it's a beautiful place. Um, and it was a place Paul had a church and, um, and Paul writes this church. There's a lot going on, um, but he doesn't just share theology. He does share theology about like end times and there was some confusion around prophecy and the end of the world and all that stuff. Um, but primarily the first half of the book, he's sharing his heart and he's not, he's not talking about the content of his teaching ministry. He's talking about the shape or the relational reality of his ministry, his philosophy of ministry, essentially. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. And this is Paul as a pastor describing his ministry. It's a trip. Verse 7 says, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, apostles just means sent one, someone who goes somewhere to start something, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse or a nursing mother nurtures her own children. He's like, you want to know my philosophy of ministry? Seven-year plan? Breastfeed, spiritually breastfeed. 
<laughs> gently nurture. It's this intimate parental language. It's relational language. Verse 8, he said, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. This isn't a cat who's doing like middle management at a mega church where he doesn't talk to people. I just run events and I get a tax break. I'm a pastor. This is, I'm spiritually parenting. I don't just preach the gospel from a stage. I open up my life to you. I share my life with you. Matter of fact, uh, one of the qualif- all the, almost the majority, there's only one that's not the majority of elder qualifications, pastoral qualifications in the Bible. Um, they're, uh, the majority are about character. And here's the thing about character. I have to have access to your life to know who you are, to imitate you, to become like you. And this, this First Thessalonians 2, it's been like my life verse for ministry. I want to share the gospel with people in my life. And hopefully in that, God does something. That's what we've aimed to do. Verse 9 says, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day, so we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. By the way, this isn't a flex. I just want to hit, we were like spiritual parents. As you know, so he's already hit nursing mother, verse 11, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so um, for Jack and I, like planting this church, we've sought to be like a spiritual mother and father to you all this past decade and change. And here's the thing about parenting. It can be real hard. Not you, Clive. I'm talking about the other kids. I always want to clarify. It's the other kids. It's exhausting. There's sleepless nights. Right now, Liv, I love Liv. She's eight, but she'll wake up. She'll wake up usually Jackie, sometimes me, but usually Jackie like this. She'll just start talking to her an inch away. We're like, home invasion robbery? Nope, just Liv. She's like, grandpa's dog is real big. We're like, it's 5 a.m. Um, why are you in our room? You have the same conversations over and over and over again. That repetition and conditioning takes time. You mediate, the, frankly, the dumbest conflicts in the world. Like, they don't make any sense. They're irrational. They're not fair. They seem real easy. If you, just, you swallow your pride for 10 seconds. It's parenting sacrificing your wants for the needs of others. It's patient listening. It's gentle but firm discipline. It's not giving kids what they want all the time, but being kind as you do that. Bad parents give their kids whatever they want if they nag enough. And, uh, and bad parents never give their kids what they want or need. And it's going, hey, I give you what you need, but not necessarily what you want for your own good. And I stay connected to you emotionally. It's convincing kids to share their things and be generous. It's modeling how to be human to them, knowing they're always watching your example. They swear, and you're like, who let them watch that movie, you know? You help them think through their thought processes. You protect them from danger. You warn them. That's like, that's when they're older. I mean, we haven't, you know, changing diapers, cleaning up messes. You can go on and on and on. Spiritual parenting is really, it's, it's the same. I mean, it's different, but, but it's, it's not different. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Parenting is incredible. There's these other moments, right? There's first steps and first words and the first time they, they score in a soccer game or a basketball game or they land a kickflip or maybe a tray flip or they ride a bike or they play a song on an instrument. There's those moments when your kids say, like, can I cuddle with you right now? And you're like, yeah, best question I've ever had. 
You see them grow in their character. You see them grow in taking responsibility. You're shaping their views about incredibly important things like who God is, how relationships work, what, what sex is designed for, what, what money is, what work is, and its connection to your identity. You teach them to apologize and do reparative work. You, you teach them to, 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 yeah, apologize, compromise, ask for forgiveness, grant forgiveness, confess sin, empathize, listen, how to cut with a knife and a fork, which is surprisingly is harder to teach than you think. I'm going, this is going too long now. I, I, it's not going to be a chunky sermon. I told Grant it's going to be short. But parenting, again, it's one of the most exhausting things you can do. It's also one of the most rewarding things that you do. And again, spiritual parenting in many ways is the same. And similar to that couple who has never left home overnight in over four years since they had children, Jackie and I had never been gone, both of us, for more than 14 days from this church. Our first vacation was five years in. I'm not, again, that wasn't great. That's not a flex. It just was the reality. We hardly made any money. And, um, and we hadn't had vacations modeled to us and a bunch of different things. So to be away for three months was anxiety-producing. Um, and again, I ask questions that parents ask each time they leave uh, for longer interval periods of time, whether it's a date night or a weekend away or a vacation or they're going to school and you're not sure how they're going to do. Will they be okay without me? Which might sound silly, but again, if, if you're in this spiritual parenting thing like Paul's describing, it's a real thought I have. Like, will they be okay without me? What if there's a massive conflict while we're gone? What if they don't behave for the interim pastor? <laughs> what if someone suffers greatly? This, is, this, this last one is a big one for me. Like, what if someone suffers deeply and I'm not there in their time of being? I'm not talking about like I need to fix it, but just someone I love deeply, I'm not aware that they're suffering. And I find out months later, like their parent died or, or something, or a kid gets sick. And so just like when we leave our kids for long stretches with, with Aunt Tammy uh, or um, Jackie's dad, um, we know that they're loving and safe. But what if they want us specifically for some reason? Now, parenting requires you to do the best you can to prepare your kids for the future and trust God with the results without being controlling. So you protect them, provide for them, prepare them for the future, and at some point, you got to let them go. And that's kind of what this felt like. Like, I had to trust God with you guys. I had to surrender the outcomes to him around this church. Like, maybe bad things would happen, and I'd have to trust that he would work everything out for your good, which, by the way, I need to believe more when we're present. Like, I need to pray more than I have coffee with people, I think, sometimes. I need to tell people who want to meet, hey, have you even prayed about this yet? Have you talked to God? In Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul describes this very dynamic when he describes his relationship with the Philippian church and their growth in Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, like you've been growing in your faith, you're obeying God, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. I think the Apostle Paul is a pretty good leader. Anybody? Thoughts? Yeah, better than me. His presence probably blessed a church if he was there. And he's like, when I'm absent, something's happening. He says, even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And then verse 14, which I prayed on Grant's behalf, do everything without grumbling and arguing. It's like, hey, church, real talk, just please don't complain. But the, the bigger idea in verse 13 is God's working out something in you, 
even when your pastor is not present. And he's working out something in your friends, even when you're not present. And he's working out something in, in your coworkers, and your ministry partners, and your spouses, and even when he's not present, your kids, even when he's not present. And so I had to surrender the outcome of your sanctification to Jesus, that he was working in you even when I couldn't pray with you or counsel you or encourage you like a spiritual father. But this kind of teaching, by the way, it's all over the Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 27, it says, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. Verse 27, I love this. The man who scattered the seed, he did his part. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. God's like, well, you're sleeping. I'm doing something. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to do our part. We have to sow seed. But after we've done that, we can be asleep. We cannot be present. We need to surrender to God. Again, but after we do our part, we need to surrender to God and not overdo it or try to control or spiral into anxious thoughts. We got to go, I'm trusting you with this thing or this person. We act and then we trust. We surrender the outcome. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds a house, it, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain, which is interesting. It's like, do builders need to build? Yeah, but you need God's help. So it's like we play our part, but then we trust him with the rest. As human beings, we're still sinful. We're still weak. We're not fully who we're going to be when Jesus returns. There's still a part of us that has real human limitations. There's a part where we need God to show up. And that, that margin between who you want to be and your need for God is the margin where faith is necessary. I've done my part. I got to trust you with the rest. We see this uh, in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says he's describing how ministry worked in Corinth, another church, uh, he helped um, he helped plant, and uh, they were kind of beefing over who their favorite leaders were. It's kind of like I like Grant, I like Andy, I like someone else. The real spiritual people were like I like Jesus, right? Um, and what Paul's going to go is the leaders don't really matter as much as you think they do. He says I planted, Apollos, another pastor, he watered, but God gave the growth. See, lead, uh, John Denton taught, taught me this: leaders create environments, and then God does what He wants to do in the environment. You want church to get weird? Get a leader who thinks it's not just their job to create the environment, but to make you grow. It's like trying to make an apple grow. I'm going to make the tree grow. Verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. <laughs> it's a humbling verse. But only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Again, they have the same purpose trying to do what Jesus is doing. And each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. He's talking about church leaders. You as the church, you are God's field, God's building. He is causing the growth. He's finishing the work. So a, a professor of philosophy at USC, got a famous guy quoted often. His name's Dallas Willard. He says his biggest advice to pastors is you don't have to make it happen. You don't have to make it happen. So much of what's, what gets weird with church and like unhealthy, toxic pastors is they think they have to make it happen. They go way beyond what the Bible says that they're called to do. So they get really controlling or they go, you know what I need? I need a platform. 
and I'm gonna do everything I can to get a platform and I'll use church to feel like a big deal to feed my ego needs as a narcissist or something because they think I need a platform and so they, they don't do God's work God's way they don't trust God they go I need to hire a bunch of ad uh, I need to hire like PR people and I, which is a real thing I need to get a book agent I need to like get myself out there I'll figure out something to say later I need to put myself out there so you see how the, the, the order is reversed. And then uh, Dallas Ward himself actually did the opposite of this. So did Tim Keller. They did stuff for like 30, <laughs> Peter Scazzaro, 30, 35 years. And then people were like, you guys should share this with other people because it's real good. Their focus was on doing the thing God had called them to do, trusting him with the results. And then people kind of started to go, hey, it'd be really cool if other people um, received this. So again, we do our part. We sow seeds, we teach, we disciple, we counsel, we pray. But ultimately, it's God who takes all of that and does something beautiful with it, which is real freeing. Because it's true at your job. It's true in your parenting. It's true in your romantic life. Like we do what we're supposed to do and then we trust him and, and he does what he wants to do. Even though it's not always easy, he'll give us what we need even if he doesn't give us what we want. In the Old Testament, there's this story where Elijah has like a showdown with the prophets of Baal, Baal, uh, and um, they're calling down, you know, fire, and Elijah puts the wet wood on the altar, and he prays. It's like he puts the wood there. God brings the fire down. He doesn't create the fire. Again, we create environments. He does his thing. And um, again, family churches retreat. We're going to create an environment. We're inviting people, and then God has to do his thing. We'll do the best we can, but, but like we can preach, but he has to take those messages and do something. We can, we can pray for people. We can create space for people to prophesy. We can create uh, space for people to do contemplative prayer and listen to God and meditate. God has to show up and do his thing, though, or it's a waste of everyone's time. By the way, this also happened on the trip, like surrendering outcomes. Um, we got to, went to Spain, and we got there, and we were really excited about it, and we got to Airbnb, and it was terrible. And you're like, we're in pretty deep for it to be terrible. Uh, brought three kids across from Europe. Some of them may or may not have gotten food poisoning. The Detroit airport, I know it's shocking that the Detroit airport, this would happen. And it just kept, it went with us to Paris, you guys. It was wild, right? It was a sacrifice. And, 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 and then we get there and the Airbnb, like they played a trick on us. Uh, the angles, like I didn't, I've never done a square footage check. Like I might start doing that in the future. Uh, it was way smaller than we thought. It didn't, it didn't feel safe for a couple different reasons with our kids. And it was like, we can stay here. And like, I'm grateful I'm here, but we're not going to relax at all, which seems kind of not good for <laughs> a sabbatical. We're going to be more stressed than at home. And, um, and so, again, and again, I had done due diligence. We had looked into this in advance. We had studied it. We had a friend who lived in that area. We did all this stuff. And we had a connection to a person who... Um, helped run the Airbnb, and we just thought it was good. It was one of their newer ones, and, um, and I just had this moment. The first day we were there, I went to lunch, and I died inside a little bit. I was like, I have ruined this trip for my family. I've made the wrong decision. And I don't know if you're like me. There's times where I feel worse about making a wrong decision or a mistake than I do a sin, which shouldn't be how it is, by the way, but it's, it's just it's this feeling of like, I did the wrong thing. And, um, and we don't have any more money. <laughs> and we've never asked, I've never interacted with Airbnb and all stuff. And long story short, we ended up getting a half refund. And then God provided um, an, a, a one and a half acre villa in Spain with a gate, with a pool, 
for the same price for only three weeks, not four weeks. It was one less week, but we knew we were going to be in North Africa visiting friends for that towards the middle of that thing. And we got this thing. We, by the way, we never would have booked. We never could have afforded it. It was a random friend of a friend, and they're like, no one's there. If they're down to stay one less week, I'll give them the same price. And it, and, it, and it worked itself out in a way that we never could have imagined. And at some point, it's like, we've done our part, and we're just going to trust and see what happens. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but it often does. God often gives us... He all, by the way, he always gives us what we need, not always what we want. Sometimes it takes... What I'm trying to say is sometimes it takes longer to see that that happened. This was right away. We're like, yes, thank you, thank you. The lady that did the tour is like, does this seem all right? We're like, yeah, yeah. The guy told our friend, he's like, hey, if they're like, if they're the kind of people that just back out of Airbnbs all the time, like, I'm not going to give them a refund. Like, they've got to want it. We're like, we want it bad. Um, now, um, here's the thing. I know it's not just pastors who struggle to surrender outcomes to God. Like, for some of you, it's, it's work. And here's the deal. The Bible says to work hard and to work is unto the Lord. And some of you, you work unto the Lord and then some. And, and, and you've made work an idol. And you give it everything. And you don't give your relationship with God much thought or your relationship to yourself or your relationship to your family, the things God has clearly called you to. And some people even use God language like, God's called me to be a CEO. Maybe he has, but not. He didn't call you to sin to get there. Or to ignore the people he's called you to love to get there. If you have to sin to, to reach the goal, God's not calling you to do it or he's not calling you in this timing. Does that make sense? But that's where you surrender it to him and go like, I feel like I'm supposed to get to that. I don't know how it's going to work. And again, um, you see this uh, all throughout scripture. Um, with work, um, it, it could cause you to cut corners or to lie, to step on people at work, to overwork, like I said. Um, it could be for you. It could be dating. Like you want to get married. You want to marry a, a phenomenal follower of Jesus who shares things in common with you that you're physically attracted to. And, um, and you get out there and you're like, it's hard out here. It's rough out here. And you guys have told me this. You guys are in the dating world right now. You're like, it is not simple. And it's complex. And, and, and in that, thing, and you're like, but I feel called to be married. I, I don't want to be alone in the way that so often we think about singleness. And I don't feel called to that and stuff. And, and, and again, if, if we take matters into our own hands, we don't surrender that outcome. I mean, we'll compromise our values, our standards, our ethics, and then efforts to like find a date worth keeping. And, 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 and it's rough. It's understandable, but, it, but, but it's rough. It takes you a place you don't want to go long term. Or it could be parenting. You could be a really controlling, anxious, afraid parent. And you're not trusting God at all with your kids' um, development. Or you're neglecting your parenting because you're doing something else that you're not trusting God with. So again, it's, this, this hits all of our lives. It could be finances. Like you could be stingy, hoarding money, always afraid about the future, whatever it is. Again, we're called to, to save and we're called to be wise. But at the end of the day, we have to trust God. First Timothy 6 says, don't, uh, he, Paul says, he tells Timothy, command the rich in this present age not to put their trust in God, which, not to put their trust in riches, which is so uncertain, but instead into the God who richly provides. If we don't surrender outcomes, uh, we'll prioritize the wrong things. You know, my kid's supposed to play in the NFL, or like, we got to go all in on sports, and we make everything about that, and our kid has no relationship. We're not tending to our kids' relationship with God for years, right? Like, it's going to be the next great saxophone players. Like, great. Again, so again, if you have to do something, and those aren't bad things, but if you have to compromise thing God has called you to do, it's, it's, it's not the right way to do it. And we can go on and on and on it goes. Um, and so when you don't surrender outcomes, it's easy to be dishonest or manipulative or lie to yourself about your motives because you think you need to make it happen, even if God has called you to do something. Again, 
We don't accomplish it on our own terms. We want to surrender to his will and his way. So much of the sin in the Bible is people just going, I'm going to take this into my own hands. Abraham is given a promise by God, father of many nations, father of the faith. And it takes a while. That's one of the hardest parts of following Jesus. God gives you a promise and then there's a waiting period. It's like a video buffering for way too long. And it goes and it goes and it goes. And you just wonder, man, is the video worth it? Or I'm just going to do a different thing. And he goes, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep with this other woman and try to create a new line and take matters into my own hands. He sleeps with Hagar. We see it with Moses, right? He, he hits the water to get, he hits the rock to get the water to come out. He takes matters into his own hands. King Saul, um, kind of a wild story. If you think the Bible's boring, you have not read it. He's about to go to battle and he's worried they're going to lose. And they were supposed to have, a, um, um, Samuel the prophet was supposed to come to put a sacrifice before the Lord and Saul takes matters into his own hands. And, um, or sorry, uh, Samuel's dead. This is the second time Samuel's dead. And he goes, you know what I'm going to do? Uh, he goes, he gets real witchcrafty and he calls the, the spirit of Eli back and Eli rebukes him, which is so funny. <laughs> and then, um, and then God goes, Hey, it's, it's over, man. Like you've, you've tried to take matters into your own hands. Again, was it wrong to want to win that battle? No, God had called them to it. Was it wrong for Moses to want to provide for the people? No, God had called them to it. Was it wrong for Abraham to want to be a father of great? No, God had called them to it, but they took matters into their own hands. And they got themselves into a whole lot of trouble. And so when we surrender outcomes to God, we go, God, you'll take care of it. It might not be what, what you want, but it'll be what you need. But it'll be good in the end. Like he's working behind the scenes while you sleep, preparing the thing for you. Providing for you in a way you didn't expect. He'll give you something that will satisfy you in a different way. Help you grow in a way you didn't anticipate. And so I have this question. This is, I just have a question. I'm going to read a, I'm going to go real old school pastor, read a poem at the end. Back in the day, Presbyterian, <laughs> Presbyterian preachers would preach a sermon and then write a poem they would read at the end of the sermon. Um, so my conclusions are just not super creative. But the question I have is this, is what people or outcomes do you need to surrender to Jesus? I encourage you to write that down, take a note. What people or outcomes do you need to surrender to Jesus? What, what are you trying to do in your own power, your own way? your own timing that causes you to actually move away from God's purposes in your life. And again, don't, it could even be like something you're called to. And, and by the way, when I air quotes, I could sound mocky. Maybe you are called to it, just not right now. In his timing, it'll happen. Is there a person you're worried about? I want to encourage you to surrender them to Jesus. I'm going to um, invite Mar up right now. We're only going to have one worship song today, so I'd encourage you, we're going to take communion to take it. But before we do that, um, would you guys close your eyes? I want to just read, um, I'm going to read a poem over you that I did not write, by the way. It's written by a French monk who's uh, lived in the late 1600s, a guy named Jean-Pierre de Cassade. And he's going to talk about um, this idea of surrendering outcomes to God because our king is kind. So I'm just going to read this over you right now. And as I do, take a second to really take it in. Get present. Close your eyes. Breathe. Get comfortable. If it's helpful to you, you can open your, your, your palms, face them to the sky, just a space of receiving. But just taking these words is what our man Jean-Pierre says. He says, the divine will is eternally present 
and the shadows of the most ordinary toil and suffering. And it is in these shadows that God hides the hand which upholds and supports us. His loving hand is all we need to know in order to achieve that sublime surrendering of ourselves, which will free us from contentious arguments and feeling we need to defend our actions. The way opens up before us as we walk and follow it with unfaltering step, grasping God's hand who is close beside us at each step and each moment in all the various situations that may arise. The only condition necessary for us is self-surrender to God in the present moment, and then our soul becomes light as a feather, fluid as water, innocent as a child, and responds to every movement of grace like a floating balloon. We are like molten metal filling whatever vessel God chooses to pour us into. God and his divine order must be cherished in all things, just as it is, without asking for anything more. Whatever he may offer us is not our business, but God's, and what he ordains is best. How simple is this perfect and total surrender of self to the word of God. And there, in continual self-forgetfulness, we can be forever occupied in loving and obeying him. Come forward, my friends. Hold your head high above everything in and around us. Let's rejoice in God and in all that he does and enables us to do. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, would you empower us through your spirit to surrender ourselves to you? There's so many things we're trying to make happen relationally, things we're trying to make happen financially, things we're trying to make happen physically, things we're trying to make happen academically and vocationally, and like we're stressed out and we're tired and we're anxious and we're angry. Would you give us this easy yoke where we trust you? God, you've called me to something. I'm doing what I can, but I have to trust you with that, that margin, that deficit between my human limitations and what you want me to do. Lord, if you want me to do something that's more than I ask or imagine, then I can't ask or imagine it. I can just do my part, and I trust you. I put the wood on the altar. You bring the fire. And so, Lord, would you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but would you help us to trust you as you do those things? And right now, as we go to communion, um, faith we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's faith in grace. It's trusting in the grace of God. It's trusting that when God says, I'll take care of this, that he did take care of it. It's, it's trusting that when Jesus says, it is finished, that it really is finished. And it's not going to check back. It's not going for reassurance. Like, did it actually, it's going, I trust you. I'm not going to take my salvation into my own hands. And Romans says that if we can, if while we were your enemies, you were for us, how much more aren't you for us now? How much more are you for us now? And so communion is a moment where we remember that we can trust you. You've proven that you're trustworthy. And so now as we take communion, would we remember that, but would we also consider the things we're not trusting you with and have a moment where we entrust them to you in prayer as we become people who live by trust, reckless trust, radical trust, and the radical grace of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. 
Amen.